I really don't understand why you don't see the sense that it makes that a bunch of black kids from Watts aren't excited about the Doobie Brothers coming to their high school. Hey, you got Pac-Man? No. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the Pie Factory Podcast. Well, well, well. Wow, that went nowhere. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 10 of the PFP, the Pie Factory Podcast. Once again, from Morris, Illinois, where I am about ready to start building me an ark with a concrete tornado shelter on top, this is Jimmy G. And from Chicago, Illinois, uh, where I am looking to build, uh, I don't know, just build a bed and go to sleep, because I'm freaking exhausted. Um... Yeah. Oh, yeah, my name. Uh, this is uh, uh, Sean. Uh, no, it oh, isn't. Oh, it's not. That's right. What no, is it? it? Janitor Sean? Janitor Sean. You got you to remember Phil, the No Swear Gamer. Yeah, Phil, the No Swear Gamer, for a moment. I thought it was an homage to Janitor, my favorite character from uh, Scrubs. What is the deal with... I, I just noticed people lately, especially during the Crosstown Classic, calling the, the Cubs the Scrubs. What does that even mean? People that don't like the Cubs have always called them that, and... Uh, I have to keep correcting them because they're like, oh, we're going to go beat the Scrubs, beat the Scrubs. And I'm like, mm, you must not be very bright because there's no baseball team called Scrubs. Sorry yeah, about that. And what, what, it's Scrubs are things that doctors wear. It's like, so you're I kind know. of honoring them. You know, that's true. But we digress big time. Do as we? As per usual. Ah, so, uh, Sean, do we have any addenda inerata for this week? Oh, just jumping right into addenda inerata, are we? Well, um, we could talk about Duran Duran. Let, yeah, okay, one. yeah, let's let's do Addenda and Errata. Yeah, please. Okay. Um. <laughs> Last episode, episode nine, when we were talking about Lost Tomb, one of us, and I'm pretty sure I was the one who mentioned this, mentioned that Arcade.com listed two separate tracks. Yes, that was you. I had wondered aloud whether that meant there was one track for, like, not buying extra whips and maybe another track for buying extra whips. Somebody who should know, particularly an arcade referee, specifically Scott Lambert of Underground Retrocade, actually did uh, chime in and say, actually, that second track is a mistake. There should not be one. So there we go. That answers that question. Ah, well, there's a mistake and it's not ours for once. No, it's our, so somebody who put in that new track on arcade.com. We got... Uh, Quite a handful of errata uh, um, regarding episode number eight, uh, Joust and Mario Brothers, specifically Mario Brothers. First of all, you didn't hear this because our producer cut it out, but Jim and I were kind of debating in Mario Brothers mm. what causes the enemies to speed up. Jim insisted high and low that it was basically kicking the enemies and letting them turn themselves back over that that would make them go faster and kind of meaner. And I said, no, 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 I just played this on the real machine. That doesn't do it. What does it is if the enemy actually completes a cycle from top to bottom and then comes back out the top pipe. Well, it turns out Jim was right. For once, woohoo! I'm going to celebrate. Woo, woo, woo. And I think the reason that I insisted, what I insisted, was that if you wait long enough, 
things start speeding up. And that must have been what happened. Must have been a coincidence that I just took too freaking long, period, and everything started speeding up. Or you had two enemies left. If you have two left and you kill one, the remaining one speeds up. There's two ways that they speed up. If they, if you flip it over and then you don't kick it off in time, or if it's the last remaining enemy on the screen. So another Mario Brothers erratum, or not really an erratum, more of an addendum, more of a clarification. I had wondered aloud again whether the POW button ever comes back. RJ on Atari Age says, and I quote, if I remember right, I read somewhere it regenerates every 10 phases. Uh-huh. I don't think either of us is good enough to see that ever happen, so... I will have to test that in MAME. That's interesting. I didn't think it ever came back. If it does, it's still not exactly handy as an emergency tool, but it has its use. And let's see, RJ also says that the coin phase slash bonus round, the difficulty increases the second time, floors are icy, and you have five seconds less to finish. Third time, which is phase 15, floors are icy, and they turn invisible. Ooh. Ah, that is new stuff to me. Thanks, RJ. Yeah, thank you for that. I've only gotten that far on the coin levels on the Atari 2600 version. Which brings up something interesting, too. Uh, I'm going to uh, add a, an errata to that one, where I was saying that the coins are, look like like a little square. Uh, that is true on the main levels. After you've killed one of the enemies and the coin comes out of the pipe, it does indeed look like a square. However, in the bonus rounds, the coins all look like coins. There's that. But that's crazy. Also, RJ adds, you didn't mention the last quote-unquote enemy Water drops that freeze into falling icicles, phase 16. And he adds, guessing you didn't get that far. Yeah, we didn't get that far. Huh. Now, that's one I never knew of. That must, That is one that was never in the Atari 2600 version, which I'm wondering about if that is 100% that, though, because I when the information I looked up was from Wikipedia, Wikipedia does have its issues, but it's generally pretty well edited. I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying that I'm going to have to put more time into Mario Brothers to check some of this stuff out. Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely want to do that. You know what would be really cool? I know it's been talked about, but I don't know if it's ever been worked on. If MAME had networking support so you could play these two-player games, you know, over the Internet. Imagine me and you being able to play Mario Brothers as you sitting up there in the city and me down here in uh, BFE. Bufu, Egypt. I thought you lived in Morris. I didn't see any damn pyramids last time I was down there. Well, I guess you didn't look very hard. We do have a very significant uh, Martian populace here in Morris. Also from the folks at Atari Age, specifically Chris++, he says, I found your pairing of these games, uh, meaning Joust and Mario Brothers, to be especially astute, as I assumed that you'd heard or read, as I had, that Shigeru Miyamoto's manager, Gunpei Yokoi, wanted him to create a game similar to Joust. He posts a link to a story about that, and he says, Anyway, note that Mario's skinning was another element taken from Joust. And I totally forgot about that, because that was very prominent in Joust as well. The more you, you dig into those two games, despite the fact that the games have different objectives, they are scarily similar. The uh, The claims that Nintendo wanted the, the, the one guy to develop a game Similar to Joust, the rumor uh, actually holds a lot of water when you compare just the basic 
play mechanics of the two. Yeah, the inertia and and all that. Uh, that's I guess that's one reason I was never all that good at either one of those games because it's very hard to control that. I was always fairly good at Joust. Mario Brothers, on the other hand, honestly, I didn't see that in very many arcades around the Joliet area, so I didn't really get to play it very much. Uh, in fact, I think the first time I played it was uh, actually up at uh, Great America Amusement Park up in Gurney, Illinois, back when it was known as Marriott's Great America, not Six Flags Great America. So it tells you how long it's been since I've played video games up there. Of course, they don't have any anymore, but that's a no, different story. I got uh, I got one uh, something to add to our discussion on Xevious. Uh, totally forgot there was a um, port of Xevious to the Nintendo Entertainment System. And uh, somebody on Atari age name escaping me for the moment. Sorry about that. Uh, might have been RJ. Now that I think about it. But when he had brought that up, Soul Blazer. Soul Blazer. Thank you, Soul Blazer. Uh, but when he brought that up. It uh, jogged my memory that there was actually a game, it was on the, not released in the United States uh, for the NES, but it was released as a Nintendo Versus cabinet called Super Xevious, which took the Xevious formula and added a lot of twists to it and puzzles that you had to solve and different landscapes. And it's not a bad game, but it's not one that I will come back and play because, in my opinion, it just doesn't have the charm of the original. Was it a Versus or a Play Choice 10? Well, that's just the thing. I want to think it was a Play Choice 10, but he was saying that it was a Versus. So it could go either way. I think some of the Versus games were actually NESs in an arcade cabinet as well. That's something else I have to look up, but it really makes sense because when you look at the... Uh, there was a Super Mario Brothers in the arcade on one of the Versus cabinets, and uh, that looked... It's a weird story because there was Super Mario Brothers that was released on the NES, and then there was Super Mario Brothers 2 in Japan. Well, we didn't get the Super Mario Brothers, the Japanese Super Mario Brothers 2, but we got a different game called Doki Doki Panic, which was rebranded as Super Mario 2. If you notice, the mechanics in that game are totally different than Super Mario Brothers. Well, then eventually, somewhere down the line on the Super Nintendo, they released a cartridge called Super Mario All-Stars, which had Super Mario 1, the American Super Mario 2, Super Mario 3, and Super Mario Brothers: The Lost Levels. Super Mario Brothers: The Lost Levels is the real Super Mario Brothers 2. That's the Japanese Super Mario Brothers 2, and that was actually released in the arcades in the United States. So, if you compare the graphics for the Super Mario Brothers and the Super Mario Brothers in the arcade, the levels look the same. Obviously, the arcade is more difficult, but the graphics are exactly the same, and that's kind of what... Uh, fuels my speculation that the uh, the Versus cabinet may also be an NES, uh, just not a play choice system. I do believe you also have another addendum for Xevious, uh, some news that actually came out today. Oh, yes. Well, actually, this has been going around on Atari Age for a while, but it actually just hit the mainstream. I think this was on uh, Kotoku. Maybe it might have been Wired. One of those tech magazine websites. But what happened was, is a more complete version of the Xevious 2600 ROM has been displayed. It's in, a, in the Video Game Museum, I think it is. It's in a museum of some sort, which we'll link to the article. And um, Tempest over at Atari Age has already seen the proto. He's seen it months ago, and uh, he has um, stated that he hopes that this will finally allow him to release the ROM for all to play. And it does indeed have the proper graphics for all of the enemies, the prototype that's floating out there right now just has some bizarre placeholder graphics, 
and the it has the uh, the background music, which I don't think the original did. The, not the original, but the you know the first proto, proto meaning prototype, and definitely has the Andor Genesis mothership. From all sources, it sounds like this is the completed game that was going to be released before the great video game crash of the eight of nineteen eighty was it nineteen eighty three happened. Looking forward to playing that one because if the prototype for the first Xevious, you could tell it was a work in progress. It wasn't all there, but it had potential. And the amazing thing was, as good as the game is, uh, the Xevious 2600 prototype, you know who programmed it? Um, Howard Scott Warshaw? Todd Fry. Todd Fry was going to be my next guest. He is a good programmer, though. He, he is. really is. He also programmed one of the Sword Quest games, but I won't hold that against him. <laughs> Every programmer has at least one turd, and it's not Pac-Man for this guy. But yes, the guy who to program the much maligned, unfairly uh, Pac-Man for the 2600 was working on porting the arcade game Xevious to the Atari 2600, and he had made some major, major, major strides with that one. It was a real, it's looking really, really good, and I really hope that this ROM gets released because I want to play it. Me being the Xevious uh, fanboy that I am. Well, you know what? That addendum also happened to be a news item, so this would be a good time to switch over to news, uh, unless you have more addenda. Uh, no, I'm good. First of all, we got some, you know, rather sad news uh, a few days ago from uh, the date we're recording this. A gentleman named Satoru Iwata, president of Nintendo, uh, died died from bile duct cancer, so that's uh, kind of a shock. Oh, cancer? I thought he died from, from a heart attack. No. Maybe the cancer somehow brought on the heart attack or something, but uh, apparently it's a very rare cancer type. That was a, a And he shock wasn't to that hear. old. He was only like 55. He is exactly 55, yeah. Yeah, it's 10 years older than me. No, actually less than that. Oh, God, I'm getting old. Apparently he's, what, only the fourth president Nintendo has ever had? Not bad for a hundred-plus-year-old company. Yeah, Nintendo is a very old company. They predate video games by, video games by at least a century, I think. Um, one of the, I don't remember what the early pro- I, you, at one point I was looking up like for some reason like the first products every company ever made and uh, Hewlett Packard's first uh, the first product they ever released was a sound generator and they sold that to Disney and uh, Sony's was a rice cooker <laughs> and uh, I'm trying I was trying to remember what Nintendo's was Nintendo like during the 20s 30s 40s that era they were big into card games. And in fact, I think they were they were into uh, card games. Well, they still are. I mean, they created Pokemon. And you see how big Pokemon's become. So they're still definitely Indeed. into the card game. They never lost their uh, interest in that particular uh in that particular type of product. Nintendo's really an interesting company. You should uh, look them up and uh, research their history. They are a very very fascinating company and I am so looking forward to seeing what their next console is going to be which they are working on. Um it's uh don't know much about it, but uh, they're saying there's going to be some more breakthroughs and innovations in it, and I'm looking forward to it. And uh, in other news, nothing terribly, terribly new to uh, report. Uh, we mentioned before how Underground Retrocade is having the Pixels Tournament. Uh, by the time uh, you's all hear this podcast episode, Yalls. it will well be underway. Um, it starts uh, July 16th, which is the day after we are recording this, and runs uh, through July 23rd. There is a one-time registration fee of $29 for the entire length of the tournament for you to 
be a contestant. I just might actually participate. If the weather is bad, I will go up to West Dundee and uh, be part of this tournament. But if the weather is nice, forget it. I'm going to the beach. Screw you guys. I'm going to the beach. And uh, the Underground Retro K just posted just probably about an hour before we started recording a picture of their front window. They recreated a still from the movie Pixels Ooh. out of post-it notes. Oh, that's and cool. it is so awesome. I'm gonna. I thought you were gonna, gonna say in their front window was a huge pane of glass. Um, I can't guarantee that. I haven't been there uh, in a couple of weeks, so I don't know. They might. They may no longer have a pane of glass. It might be plexiglass now. So yeah, definitely gonna put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, the tournament, of course, is to promote pixels, and there will be prizes that are pixels related, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And speaking of prizes, we will be having a contest here on the Pie Factory podcast. Once again, what you need to do is listen to the special episode in which we deal with home consoles. A very special Pie Factory podcast. The After School Pie Factory podcast. This is episode 10 you're listening to. The contest will begin episode 12. That is the console episode. Yes. What you need to do is at one point in the episode, you're going to hear us mention one arcade game we will be talking about in episode 13. At another point in the episode, you will hear us mention the other arcade game we will be talking about in episode 13. They're not going to be hidden. We're going to say, okay, this is going to be this game that we're going to be talking about in episode 13 next time. We're not going to be like, get out your secret pie factory decoder ring. No, and there's a reason for that. It's because they haven't come back from uh, China in time, so we haven't been able to do that. So we actually you know, have to tell you that would be a kind of a fun are. prize. That would be kind of a fun prize to give out, <laughs> or a fun little token thing. I might have to look into that. Yeah, why not? Um, should speaking of which, should we say at least part of what the prize is? Uh, you go for it. Okay, uh, I'm not going to say all of the prize. I will say this: I will. Part of the prize package is going to include Atari 2600 game cartridges, tested uh-huh. and working. That's just part of the prize package. That's not the entire thing. So they don't get a brand new car? Oh, I I can't say yet. I can neither confirm nor deny that. But you get an Atari cartridge, and you get an Atari... Actually, only one person gets all of them, so there. No, there's going to be no brand new car, because quite frankly, I can't afford the buck and a half for new Hot Wheels. No, no. They're a buck and a half now? Well, oh, they're man. knockoffs from the dollar store. Man, that's still that's still a lot of money. Uh, anyway. Yo, Jim has mentioned other podcasts that he listened to that aren't even video game related. And one thing I do have to mention here, those of you who've been listening to us pretty regularly, you probably concluded that I am a Beatles fan, you know, given our fab4it.com address and everything. And yeah, you're absolutely right. To me, the Beatles are the end-all be-all. Having said that, I just want to plug... Uh, a podcast that, besides Pie Factory podcast, of course, uh, <laughs> is my favorite podcast ever. It's called Fab Four Free for All, uh, hosted by a few guys over in uh, Long Island. They've been friends for years and years and years. And those guys, they are hilarious. Even if you don't like the topic they're talking about for an episode, it is still one of the most entertaining things you could ever hear. These guys are such cut-ups and everything. And they're really nice guys, too. It's called Fab Four, the number four, free, the number four. All Fab Four free for all. Maybe I'll put a link in it in the show notes. So, and also while I'm on the subject of shouting out, I mentioned Chris Plus Plus from Atari Age earlier. I I started reading his what he calls classic gaming book cast, which I believe is available for pretty much every major ebook. It costs a dollar, 
let me tell you, folks, I think he is, dra- he is tragically undercharging for it. Uh, he talks about all kinds of uh, classic video games, arcade, and various home versions, including video game consoles and old computer versions of it. And not only is he giving us good content, but it's also extremely entertaining. Uh, his writing style is very, very powerful and uh, witty. Uh, something I just want to talk about, since we talked about Joust a couple of episodes back, uh, something he said about Joust that I, I'm not going to be able to unsee. He's He wondered in his book cast how on earth a giant bird lays an egg and the and a apparently human jouster hatches out of it. His concluding thought on that was, what are these people doing to these buzzards? Good night, everybody. So, yeah, we'll, uh, so episode 12, that will be, uh, when the contest will actually take place. We'll tell you which games we were, we are going to be playing for episode 13. Your job is to correctly guess the theme, the theme that we have decided on. And here's a hint. It's not games that have letters in their name or nor numbers. That's not the theme. That kind of narrows it down. So, um, I do declare that's I do all, declare. It's all I have in news. How about you? Do you have anything further in news? I do not. If anything, I just have stuff in olds. And what would that be? Uh, dead bodies in the trunk. All right. Um, yeah, let's uh, g- talk about that a little bit later. Um, so, Mr. <laughs> Host, why don't you tell us what we're going to do this episode? We're just going to sit around and BS and pick on Ferg all, t- all episode. Now, speaking of that, I think we should just, you know, let, you know, let's stop picking on Ferg. I don't, you know, it seems that every episode. Yes, you know what? You know, that's true. We do. Let's pick yeah. on Phil. Since yeah, Phil gave pick- you the name Janitor Sean. Yeah, that's true. So, so this episode, we're going to talk about how wonderful and awesome a game Mr. Do is. Yes, we will. All right. So let's, yes, let's talk about, uh, Ferg. We love you. You're a nice guy. Uh, Phil. And by the way, Ferg and Phil both have helped us out with the contest in a way. We, they were, they, you know, they gave us some guidance. So I would just want to extend thanks to both of them. So still doesn't mean we're not going to pick on, uh, Phil though. No, no, no. no. Oh gosh! Uh, so let's uh, let's talk about our games today, and uh, we've got two of them. Once again, you will never have more than two games on an episode in this podcast so far. And th- I think we'll talk. Let's do these in alphabetical order, starting with the last letter of the name. So uh, R comes before S. So let's go with Frogger. Ribbit. Frogger is ribbiting. <laughs> so oh! I did there. So let's talk about Frogger, baby. Okay. Wow, I did that joke last episode. All right, so Frogger. Classic, 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 classic game. Classic. Another total classic from the Pie Factory. What you got is you got a frog, and you got to get him to his little lily pad up at the top of the screen. And you got to get him up there five times. Well, it's not technically a lily pad. It's a little bay. Well, what you have to do, first of all, is get the frog past several lanes of traffic. And then there's a patch of grass in the middle where you can rest him. Then you have to go across several moving obstacles in the in the river. Yeah, you can hop on the turtles. You can hop on the logs. And in later levels, you can hop on the back of a crocodile. And by later levels, you mean level two and higher. Indeed. Although I was playing level two today and I didn't see the crocodile appear in the river. But then again, I didn't complete the level. I think I only got two in the... Uh, Two of the uh, frogs home. And as I was saying, the turtles uh, will sometimes dive underwater. 
And you can land on the back of the crocodile. Just don't go anywhere near his mouth. Otherwise, you are frog fricassee. Of course, the alligator isn't cooking, so he's not technically fricassee. But I digress. Um, along the way, there are a couple of other obstacles. There is a snake that will sometimes appear in the safe zone in the patch of grass in the middle of the screen. Uh, sometimes he will appear on a log. And if you're on the edge of a log, although I've never had this happen, if you're safe on the edge of a log, sometimes an otter will come out and uh, eat you if you're on the side of the log, like on one of the ends of the log. That happened to me last night. Oh, it did? Yeah, because I had, had ne just like you, I had never seen what that otter actually does. And I looked up Frogger and Otter in my search engine, and it came up with uh, um, something about how what will happen is there's an animation of the otter actually opening its mouth really wide and then taking a bite out of you. No way. I have never seen that animation. I intentionally stayed at the very edge of the log to watch that happen because I had never had that happen. In fact, when this game was first out, the common lore among my grade school friends was basically if you're on the log and the otter starts chewing the log, you're dead. So literally until last night, for 30-some years, whenever I'd play this game, I would actually avoid a log if there was an otter anywhere near it. Interesting. And I, thinking about it, I don't recall seeing the otter in any of the home versions of the game. Granted, I don't think so. I've only had the 2600 and the ColecoVision versions. Uh, which 2600 version? The uh, Parker Brothers. Yeah, fun fact, there were actually two officially released versions of Frogger. For the Atari 2600, one and by Parker Brothers, which is the one that everybody had, and one for the Starpath Supercharger, and the reason they could get away with that is because Parker Brothers had the rights to the cartridge format game. The Supercharger version, which I believe was called the original Frogger, that was a cassette tape. Mm-hmm. And... The reason they were able to get away with it is because the Supercharger Company had the rights to magnetic media distribution for the game. That's right. And actually, their version was actually graphically much better than Parker Brothers' version. Indeed, it was. But I want to continue here with the original game. Depending on how stingy the arcade owner was, you could start the game with either three, five, or seven frogs. Found that out the hard way. <laughs> How did you find that out the hard way? Well, my brother had told me about Frogger when it was first out, because I was all mm. about Pac-Man. He's like, well, there's this new game out called Frogger, and he told me all about it. I had mentioned before that um, when I first saw Donkey Kong, it was at the Holiday Inn in Bradley, Illinois, which no longer exists, actually. I'm talking the Holiday Inn. Bradley still exists, unfortunately. But uh, Don't get me started. That was during uh, President's Day weekend, 1981, I believe. Well, one night during that weekend, we all went out to dinner, and where we went out to dinner, they had a couple of video games kind of by the coat closet. One of them was Frogger, and my brother was like, hey, let's go over and play that. And I remember the first thing he said was he, when we started playing, he noticed that there were only like two frog indicators at the bottom, you know, representing how many lives well, you, you have in reserve. reserve. Yeah. Right. And he said, I could have sworn that you're given five frogs in this game. And it turns out that's mm -hmm. exactly what it was, because we played it again once when we went back sometime later, and they did have it set for five frogs. And I have never not seen it set for five frogs since in any you know, any place I've ever played Frogger. I'm going to rant a little bit about something here, about the classic days of arcades and your extra life indicators. You would always have 
you know, whatever you're playing on screen, and then you would have, you know, the indicator for how many lives, ships, frogs, whatever you have in reserve. Sometimes I have come across some games where the number of lives that you have in reserve also counts the one that you're playing. Yes. So you will have like, say, five. I'm not saying Frogger does this. In fact, I know Frogger doesn't. But you'll it says you'll have like four or five. Let's say it says you'll have five lives, but then you lose a life. You actually only have four lives in reserve. Then you have the one that you're currently playing. And that I've always made no sense to me whatsoever. When you're down to your last life, you still see you have a life in reserve. You lose your life that you're playing, and the game's over. You think you got one in reserve. And I have seen some games do this. I don't know if they did that on purpose, if they thought it was a good idea, if it was just shoddy programming. But that is something that I have encountered, and it's uh, bologna sausage. So... Watch out for that sometimes. But you don't have to worry about that with frogs. Wait, what did you say? Watch out for snakes? <laughs> In the middle of the playfield. Watch out for snakes. Uh, one other thing about Frogger is you do, have an, uh, you do have a time limit to get a frog into the bay. And the time is, I believe, it's 60 seconds. And every time you get a frog into the bay, the timer resets. I don't know if it's actually seconds. It might be clicks. It might be clicks. Yeah, because the on Love, they have a screenshot of the attract mode with the instructions on it. Uh-huh. It says, object is to safely maneuver a frog to its home within allotted time. 60 beats on the timer. Oh, so it might not be seconds. So 60 beats. You know, there was there's something unusual about Frogger that's always kind of bugged me. And, of course, ev- almost every review of Frogger brings this up. Now... One of the things in this game is, is that you don't touch the water. Water is death. With the exception of your home bay, which is water. I remember the very first time I played this game. It was, uh, it was actually, we were on vacation. We were camped in Arizona, actually, north of the community of Flagstaff, right outside Sunset Crater National Monument, which is my favorite unit of the National Park Service, by the way. And we were in a laundromat doing our laundry, and there was a Frogger machine in there. And I thought the object was to leap your frog onto the grassy area at the top of the screen, because that makes logical sense. But it doesn't. You have to leap him into the watery bay next to the grassy area, which doesn't make sense, because prior to that, you're avoiding the water. Makes no sense. No, it does make sense. Because, first of all, frogs, obviously, they can't breathe water. Only when they're tadpoles at a young age, they can breathe water. Now, here's what's going on. See, I almost said, here's the thing, like I always do, but not that time. <laughs> what's going on is the water is too deep and your frogs cannot swim. I think, I think they have like weakened legs or something, so they can't really swim very well. That's why it's dangerous to hit the water. So the water where all the turtles and the logs are is very deep. So they fall under and drown. What you can't tell because of, you know, primitive two dimensional graphics is that those five little spaces at the top, the water's only a couple of inches deep. Then why not make that a lighter color? They could have done that, and then it would have ended this debate once and for all. But they didn't. Because we wouldn't have a damn show if they did that. You never know. We'd be done talking about Frogger already, and we'd be talking about the other game. Oh, by the way, thinking of more things with Frogger, I forgot to talk about the bonuses. Bonuses? There are two bonuses that you can get of over and above a bonus for getting all of your frogs into the bays on, in time. Do tell. First of all, there is a lady frog that hops on one of the logs. And if you pick up the lady frog, uh, 
Hey, baby. Uh, how's it going? <laughs> if you guide the lady frog who is on your back to one of the one of your homes, you get bonus points for bringing her back. Yeah, you get and bonus every- points for getting the lady on your back. We've been trying to get ladies off of our back. God, I want to make a dirty joke so bad. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the other bonus we should do, we should some- like ha- like we should like do the dirty jokes and have a have like a separate bonus podcast called Pie Factory After Hours. <laughs> well, I would do that, but I need to get a smoking jacket first and a brandy snifter. I've always wanted a smoking jacket. The other bonus is sometimes a fly will appear in one of your home bays, and if you can jump into that, you get bonus points for eating the fly. 200 for that, 200 for your girl. Exactly. There is one other hazard that I did not mention, and that sometimes there will be a crocodile head appearing in your home. If you jump into it while only the first little bit of his mouth is showing, you're safe. But if the crocodile's full head is showing in your bay, you have lost a life. God, that is so the godfather, when you think about it. I thought this was interesting. There was a magazine, I believe, in 1982 called Softline, and they stated that Frogger has earned the ominous distinction of being the arcade game with the most ways to die. Shall we go down the list? Oh, yes, let's. We should, you know what, there's almost ten items on here. We should do a top ten list. Paul, can I have some some Frogger dying music, please? <laughs> Gonna kill off a frog! <laughs> Number nine, running out of time. Number eight, jumping into the side of a home or the bush. Number seven, (laughs) jumping into a home already occupied by a frog. Number six, riding a log, alligator, or turtle off the side of the screen. Number five, staying on top of a diving turtle until it has completely submerged. Number four, jumping into a home invaded by an alligator. Number three, running into snakes, otters, or into an alligator's jaws in the river. Number two, jumping into the river's water. And the number one way to die in the arcade game Frogger is being hit by or running into a road vehicle. So many things we learn about frogs in this game. We learn that frogs can't swim. Uh, we learn that girl frogs are purple. We learn that having the same gender of frog contact another will result in death. And I find it interesting, uh, going over the game's history here, it was developed by Konami, and it was released in Japan and Europe by Konami. It was released in the United States, and, well, North America, by Sega Gremlin. And um, I just find that interesting because years later, and I don't remember what year it was, but it was in the 90s, I believe, Sega actually came out with an arcade game called, I believe it was called Ribbit, which was a similar concept. The difference was is that it wasn't just, obviously, the graphics were enhanced, but you didn't have just play field with, like, cars and, and things you have to avoid in that. First of all, the frogs looked, they looked realistic. And some of the things you had to make your way across are like rotating turntables, like you're on a on a uh, on a on a record player and stuff like that. It's just like really really bizarre twists to the whole thing, and in its own right, it's a fun game. I don't know if you really could consider it a sequel, but it kind of carries on the tradition, if you will. And it's a fun game, which I suggest you check out. Um, it's good for a few plays. Your mention of say. 
continuing on the Frogger theme, one thing that's just screaming to be mentioned that we haven't mentioned yet, mm-hmm. Activision's Freeway. Yeah, it's interesting because I noticed with Activision, they didn't make arcade conversions, and in fact, they they really basically in their early days would not license arcade titles. They did in their later days. They created Double Dragon and uh, Rampage, but several of the games that Activision did were actually ripoffs of Atari arcade games. Kaboom is a ripoff of the Atari arcade game Avalanche. Avalanche boulders falling down from the top of the screen. You had to catch them with, I don't remember what it was at the bottom of the screen. That was Kaboom. And Freeway came out about the same time Frogger did. The only difference with Freeway is, well, there were several differences. First of all, you could only move up and down. Frogger, you have full four-directional control, which honestly, with the way Frogger operates, I just couldn't see operating without the full four-way control. Oh, yeah. And Freeway also didn't really have a goal. It was just to see how many chickens you could get across the road in a time limit. A lot of the early Atari arcade game or Atari games, both by Atari and by third parties, were beat-the-clock type games, which I don't know, kind of not a huge fan of, but I can understand why they did that in the earlier days. And one of the other differences is, is that Freeway was just you had to go past lane after lane after lane after lane of cars. And to be, to be quite honest, graphics on Freeway were terrible simple but they did work. They had, I mean, they didn't really have to have all these flashy graphics. They had just very simple graphics, a gray play field with yellow dashed doubled line across the middle, and then white dashed lines, and it looked like a freeway. I mean, that's what it was. I mean, just needed the symbol. Freeway's not a bad game. It's, it's really pretty good. It's not a bad game if you can separate it from Frogger. Exactly. You know the story of how that game came about. How is that? I don't remember who the person was, but I believe it was the person who developed Freeway was at the Consumer Electronics Show at McCormick Place in Chicago and was looking outside the window and saw some boob trying to walk across Lakeshore Drive. Now, if anybody is unfamiliar with Lakeshore Drive, especially around McCormick Place, Lakeshore Drive at McCormick Place is basically a 10-lane freeway. It is an expressway. There are no pedestrians allowed to cross there, and if you try it, you are dead meat, no matter what time of day it is, whether it's rush hour, whether it's the middle of the night, because that's basically right where Interstate 55 ends, right at Lake Michigan. So there's horrible traffic there every hour of day and the night. And that's probably why the game was originally called Bloody Human Freeway. You can actually get the prototype ROM from that. I'm not even making that up. That is not a joke. No, that was the original title. There. And instead of a uh, instead of a chicken, you are a human, and if you get hit by a car, you turn into a bloody mess. Yep. So they changed it to the old, why did the chicken cross the road joke? You want to hear my favorite, why did the chicken cross the road joke? No. Why did the libertarian chicken cross the road? Um. Who wants to know, am I being detained? <laughs> that's a, I like that. I like that. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, one thing I do want to emphasize, though, is that as far as anybody can tell, Freeway did not rip off Frogger. Frogger did not rip off Freeway. They were both, as far as anybody could tell, they were both developed in tandem. It just so happened by coincidence. Which does happen quite a bit. Yeah. Not everything is developed, you know, at the same time on purpose. I want to go over quickly uh, the game systems and computers and that that Frogger was ported to. But I was thinking about that, and I thought it would be just easier just to mention the systems it wasn't ported to. 
I was going to say the Timex Sinclair 1000, but I I think it was ported to that now that I think about it. Uh, <laughs> Why don't we just say uh, it's safe to assume Mattel, that... The Mattel Aquarius, it was never ported to that, and it was technically never ported to the Coleco Atom. You could play the ColecoVision cartridge in it, but there was never a Coleco Atom-specific version. And I think that is all the platforms it's never been ported to. Yeah, I think you can even get it on iOS, too. You could, there's a you can modern get it on version. iOS, you can get it in the... Uh, you know, it may not have been... No, I was thinking it might not have been ported to the Wii U, but I'm pretty sure actually you can get that in the Nintendo uh, Wii Store. So yeah, there you go. I can only think of two computers it was never ported to. It's I don't port- think Amiga. Oh, had you know, it. Fairch- Fairchild Channel F never had it. Uh, the Bally Astrocade never had it. The Amiga there was probably a PD version of. Pro- it oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure there was. Yeah, I, I am counting PD versions. PD being public domain. I don't know if you remember, but a few years ago, there was a homebrew Atari 7800 version in the works. And I don't think it was called Froggy. And I I played the ROM on MESS, and it was amazing. It was, like, arcade perfect. Whatever happened to that? I don't know. Who was developing that? I would love to be... If if nothing else, I wish they would hurry up and finish up the Concerto cartridge for 7800 so I could put the ROM on that and play it in an actual machine. Interesting. So it wasn't technically ported to the 7800 either, although somebody was working on it. One thing I do got to say, Atari 5200 had it. What I hated about the 5200, and I I know this was the same thing for Qbert, both of which were made by Parker Brothers for the 5200, so I'm guessing that maybe any 5200 port made by Parker Brothers that involved movement, because of the wonky nature of the analog 5200 Mm -hmm. joystick that didn't self-center... Every time you move, you have to push the fire button. Now, I have to say, me and Sean just recently did a trade. I gave him one of my spare Atari 8-bit computers, and he gave me his uh, his Atari 5200. It and by the way, I just I just bought Frogger for the Atari 8-bit recently. You're going to have to t- show, tell me how that is, because I don't have it, although I could hook it up with my uh, SIO2PC card, which I haven't actually busted out in a while. But the thing, and I tried the Frogger on the 5200, and it looks good. It does. But the controls ruin it. Yes. Now, you mentioned Qbert had the same, it had a similar get-up, where you had to push the button every time you moved. Yes. And quite frankly, I got used to it on Qbert. Really? Yeah, I was actually, I got all the way to, uh, I only got all the, I made it through eight screens on Qbert. Wow. You know what, I can understand, because Qbert, the movement is pretty, is pretty slow. You can you know, hurry up and plan your next move. You have plenty of time to do that. Frogger, there are Frogger times when sometimes you, relies on real quick movements. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is one of the, what I think is what causes many people to not score very highly, including myself on Frogger, because, you know, you want to keep moving and move fast and all that, and you really do need to practice a little bit of patience now and then in Frogger. You really do. It's easy to forget, too. Now, one thing I want to mention about Frogger. Ribbit. There actually was a sequel to Frogger, but it was console only. And yes. It's called Frogger 2 3 Deep. There were a couple of scenes in it. First of all, you were Frogger. You were at the bottom of the water, and you had to get to a, a tugboat at the top. And then when you're at the top, you hit your. it was like uh, the screen you're seeing here. You had to hop on the backs of like different fish and turtles and whatever, and you get to the uh, the top of that screen. No, I'm sorry. The first screen, I think you had to get to a lily pad. The second screen, you have to get to the tugboat. And then you have to hop on the backs of birds to get into the clouds. So it was it was an interesting concept. I played the uh, ColecoVision version of it way back when, 
I wasn't too fussed about it, but then I try, then I fired it up again, thanks to the SIO2 PC uh, card for the Atari 8-bit computer, and I had a better time with it. And uh, I suggest you check it out. It's a very interesting twist on the Frogger franchise. Why it was never an arcade game is beyond me, but it's 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 pretty fun. It's worth a it's worth a look. Now I haven't played Frogger. T- I played Frogger two like once or twice many years ago. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the frog actually knows how to swim in this game, right? Yes, he does. Interesting. On one screen. Aha. Uh-huh. Or, or wait, or is he, does he avoid the, the stuff on the other screen? I do know there's a after you get your guys into the tug, you can either get your guys into the tugboat or you can hop on the back of a mama duck. And if you hop on the back of the mama duck, then you go to the screen where you have to jump on the back of birds and clouds to get all the way to the top. That's how it worked. So it had a real, a ni- real lot of nice twists that made for an interesting game. As I said, I wasn't too fussed about it the first time I played it, but after playing it more recently, uh, I'd say it's worth a, it's worth a look. What about high scores? What are we looking at? Oh, high scores. Well, uh, um, first of all, my high scores would not include mine. Um, but yeah, actually, just for fun, what is my high score on Frogger? Well, according to arcade.com, my highest score was holy crap. I didn't know I scored this high. 24,320. Oh, way to go. Usually, usually I die by 15,000 points, but I must have had a really good day that day. So, uh, so that's my score. Going back to, now this is interesting. Arcade.com lists two separate tracks for Frogger, a points track, which is just plain scoring track, uh, which Pat Lafaye, I believe it's pronounced L-A-F-F-A-Y-E, performed at Richie Knuckles Arcade on June 28th, 2009. His score 771,060. Wow. That's a little bit better than my high score, 24-something. Now, the other track, and this is interesting, it's called Inviso Frogger. Uh, okay. I'm guessing that means uh, your frog is invisible. This is another name I don't know how to pronounce, but I'm going to try anyway. Mike Lukianoff on January 5th, 2013, scored 5,220 on this particular version of Frogger. That was performed during MAGFest 10. Mm-hmm. According to Twin Galaxies, verified by DVD, um, September 18th, 2012, which, which, by the way, is my 13th wedding anniversary... A gentleman named Michael Smith scored 970,440. I can't Ooh. imagine how long that must have taken to do that because Frogger is a slow, is pretty, is a pretty slow, in terms of your score, it's a slow paced game. Okay. What, you know what? I'm looking at an article here just to go back on something that I had talked about before about the, how it was easier to mention the uh, systems that it wasn't ported to. First of all, Coleco did release one of those standalone mini arcade tabletop versions of Frogger, which I heard was actually pretty good. But I did not know this. And to make it clear that this was basically ported to almost everything, it was also ported to the Tomy Tutor Play Computer. Wow. Yes. And Tomy licensed it directly from Konami themselves. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so this was literally on everything and it's still on everything to this day we gotta find a video of that thing if not the actual thing no kidding i bet i bet that gets lots of money on ebay i'll bet you anything it's it's findable at like midwest gaming classic and things like that oh it might be i'm sure that is our mission to find this if anyone listening out there can track this down i want to see it so that's that's all i had to say at this point uh should we rate the game or do you have something further to say no i'm got nothing to say 
uh, Frogger. It's one of those games that appeals to everybody. It's pretty, well, I'd say nonviolent, but getting squished by a vehicle and eaten by crocodiles is pretty dang violent. It's not violent. I mean, getting squished by a, a car accident is not a violent thing. A crocodile eating a frog, that's just nature. It's just... I would imagine it's pretty violent if you're the frog. Well, by that logic, I committed violence by having chicken for dinner tonight. Tasty, tasty violence. Mmm. As far as it goes, Frogger, awesome music, which the uh, the songs I did not know, with the exception of one or two songs, are all based on Japanese uh, children's songs, and even one is a theme from a Japanese anime. I recognize uh, Camp Town Ladies and some other so I don't remember do, another... Do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. No, that that's that was I think one of the Japanese ones. But there's definitely do, 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 do. something but, familiar to to us Americans in there somewhere. I don't remember what though. I was like, oh, I know what that song is. It's only like two seconds, and it goes back to like the main theme in Frogger. Oh, one thing I gotta say about Frogger music: we cannot talk about Frogger without talking about Froggy's Lament. You know what that is? Buckner and Garcia. Buckner and Garcia. I played the hell out of that album, and I actually dug that out a few years ago because I, I never got rid of it, and I played it. I gotta say, as dumb as it seems, in terms of the songs themselves, they're actually pretty solid. It's it's like pretty decent. You listen to it, this isn't bad at all. My theory is that Buckner and Garcia were working on just a regular old album at the time, and they had a one-off novelty song called Pac-Man Fever. And Columbia had a hit with it. So when Buckner and Garcia was working on their album, Columbia went to them and said, hey, you know what? We need an album of video game songs. That's my theory. Because otherwise, if it weren't for the dopey lyrics on these songs, they would be pretty darn good, especially for the early 80s. Well, there's musicianship there. Let's put it that way. Oh, yeah. Frogger. Very, very musical. It's got great sound effects. One of the more colorful games outside of Zookeeper. It's uh, it's an arcade classic. It's solid gold to make you feel old. Uh, five continues easy. I agree with you on all of that. Every single thing you just said, the graphics, the sound, the music, the playability, the classicness. The only thing I disagree on is the rating. Uh-oh. I'm going to tell you something. I give Frogger a three continues. Three Whoa. continues. Yeah. And, and I'll tell that? you why. Several of our episodes, the the concept of the cheap death has been mentioned. And as far as I'm mm-hmm. concerned, Frogger is the master of cheap deaths. Really? Please oh, elaborate. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And this was really pissing me off when I was playing this in prep for the episode. For example, sometimes, even if you are... Let's say that you are on one log, and you're about to jump to another log, and you have a very clear path... Sometimes he doesn't make the jump all the way and he drowns. I am not kidding. That happened to me multiple times. I was like, are you look into that? Are you fergin' kidding me? And another thing that happens, and I know this is not a bug in the game, and I'll tell you why. Well, first I'll tell you what I'm talking about. If you're in the in the lanes of the highway, even if you can if you have enough room to jump out of the way and move out, if you get close enough to a vehicle, the game mechanic will not let you move. It will not let you move out of the really? way once a vehicle gets within a certain distance of you. I'll have to look into that. I know that's not a bug because the home versions do that too. Huh. And one other thing I have to mention, speaking of deaths, jumping your frog into a landing space that's already occupied kills you in the arcade version, but not uh, at least not in the Atari 2600 version. 
Are you sure? Because I've yes. died that way. I am absolutely sure. He doesn't move. He doesn't move at all. If you died that way, you might have been off center. Oh, one interesting thing about the 2600 version, if you have the difficulty switch set to B, you can wrap around the side of the screen on the logs. If you have it set to A, you die when you hit the edge of the screen like in the arcade. But the difference is, is that in the arcade, you actually have a little bit of leeway, but not on the 2600 version. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that myself. If you are crossing the screen horizontally on the 2600 version and wrapping around to the other side, if you move your joystick to the left or right during that time, the frog will warp right to the middle of the screen. And if there's nothing there, he dies. See, so you, if you're huh. doing that, you better hope there's a log there. I did not know that. Yeah, I discovered that accidentally. We'll have to look into that. So, yeah, so that's why I give Frogger a three. You see, we thought, uh, everybody th- probably thought that we'd just, de- by default, give Frogger a five. Well, Jim did, but not for default. He gave legitimate reasons. I gave it a three, not to be contrarian, but because, really, this game does make me quite angry. Fascinating. Maybe, maybe I'd change my mind into a four, because I do find myself going back to it now and then. It's one of those one-more-try games. Honestly, I'm surprised people haven't gotten tired of the game, what with its ubiquity. I was going to say ubiquitousness, but I don't think that's a word. Ubiquitosity. There you go. Ooh, big word for the day. So, there we go with Frogger. Now, let's move on to another game. Shall we? Come. Come on an exciting journey to the far reaches of space. And Wow, I'm getting really good at these segues. So let's go to the far reaches of space for our next game, Asteroids. Ribbit. You're in a spaceship in the middle of the screen. It's a big black screen, and this is one of the Atari's early vector arcade games. And you're in the middle of the screen, and asteroids are all around you, and you have to shoot them to destroy them. And if you hit a large asteroid with one shot, it turns into two smaller asteroids. And if you hit the smaller asteroids with a shot, it turns into two even smaller asteroids. And then you hit those with a shot, and then it disappears. It's done. Gone. You destroyed it. Every now and then, either a satellite, as they call it, or a UFO will come flying out on the screen. Uh, They both have the same exact graphic. The only reason you know they're different is the satellite is larger, and the sound is different. It's a lower-pitched sound for the satellite, and it's a higher-pitched sound for the UFO. The satellite and UFO also shoot at you. The satellite shoots pretty much randomly, but the UFO shoots kind of aiming toward you. It'll aim at, if I'm not mistaken, it aims at what anything in its way, and then aims for you. Both the shots from the UFO and the satellites can destroy asteroids and crumble them down and make things a little more interesting. And um, that, is in a nutshell, is the gameplay. The, uh, the control panel is five buttons, a rotate left, a rotate right. In the middle of the, uh, the control panel is a hyperspace button, which is rarely used. Then you have a thrust button and a fire button. Now, one of the big strategies for this game is to pretty much just stay in the middle of the screen and just ignore the thrust button. That's generally the way I play it. And, uh, you know, rotate and shoot everything. That's the way a lot of people play it, which it works for a while, but every now and then you're going to want to get out of the way of Space Rocks, which is the actual original title of the game. Really? Uh, I believe so. There's an Atari 2600 homebrew called Space Rocks. Uh, you know what? Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, actually, it's interesting. The history of it, the original concept for Asteroids was is that you had a spaceship and you had to just tag you know, the different rocks floating around the screen. But then they got the idea of maybe making the idea where you have to shoot the, uh, the rocks to destroy them. Some interesting highlights about the game. 
It was the Atari's best-selling arcade game of all time. Guess how many units it sold? Um, 6,723. Oh, very close. It sold over 70,000. There are over wow. 70,000 asteroids machines made. Uh, they made an estimated $150 million in sales from the game, and arcade operators earned a further $500 million from the coin drops. Atari was in the process of making another game, Lunar Lander, which is an interesting game, but demand for asteroids was so high, this is quoting Wikipedia, that several hundred asteroid games were shipped in Lunar Lander cabinets. Asteroids was so popular that some arcade operators had to install larger coin boxes to hold the number of coins spent by the players. And uh, go into interesting here, the saucer in the original game design was supposed to take a shot as soon as it appeared. This action was altered, so there would be a delay before the saucer shoots, leading to lurking from players, again quoting Wikipedia. It's a strategy in which the player uses thrust to keep the ship in motion, leaves one or two asteroids undamaged, and hunts for saucers, allowing the player to pick off as many as 1,000-point UFOs as possible and play indefinitely on a single credit. Since the saucer could only shoot directly at the player's position on the screen, the player could hide at the opposite end of the screen and shoot across the screen boundary while remaining relatively safe. Complaints from operators losing revenue due to lurking led to the creation of an EEPROM restricting such chances. Usage of the name... Oh, this is interesting. Usage of the names of Saturday Night Live characters Mr. Bill and Sluggo to refer to the saucers in an Esquire article about the game led to Ed Logg and Atari receiving a citizen deceased letter from a lawyer with the Mr. Bill trademark. Which, that was, uh, that was an interesting little bit of trivia there, once again from Wikipedia. Once again, this game is considered pretty much a classic. Um, oh, I neglected to mention one thing. Uh, when you shoot your bullet, when you shoot your laser, it will actually warp around the side of the screen uh, a little bit. So, you got to watch out for that. That's why this... That is what? Watch reason. out for snakes? Watch out for snakes! Exactly. This is one of the reasons why the lurking strategy works, is because you have enough time to get out of the way, but you can also turn and shoot through the side of the screen to get the UFO or satellite on the other side of the screen. Uh, if you go off the top of the screen, you come around on the bottom, left, go, you know, come out on the right, and vice versa. Asteroids. I don't remember the very first time I ever played it. Uh, I do recall one of my earlier ones was at, oh gosh, what was the name of the place? Um, Babe's Hot Dogs. They owned, uh, it's a, it, Babe's Hot Dogs is a Joliet, Illinois legend. They're legendary. Uh, they only have one location left. It's right on Route 30 at the uh, the Six Corners, where Black Road, and um, I can't think of the other ones there. But it's closer. It's it's uh, it's a couple of miles from downtown. It's right at the College of St. Francis, or University of St. Francis now. My alma mater. Exactly. So, if you're ever in Joliet, you want a good Chicago-style dog, I suggest going there. But they had a couple of other locations at one time. One was closer to where I live, which is closer to the Louis Joliet Mall on the very northwest far northwest side of town, and uh, they had an Asteroids machine in there, and I remember playing that one, and that's the earliest I remember ever playing an Asteroids machine. I was never horribly good at it, but it's one of those games where uh, you can actually get a flash of inspiration playing the game, and as I said earlier, I always would rotate and just pretty much stay in, in place and keep hitting the fire buttons. I'm actually a bigger fan of Asteroids Deluxe. Asteroids Deluxe is a sequel to Asteroids, duh. But uh, there was a few changes. I love Asteroids Deluxe. I like it so much better than Asteroids. There were, there were several uh, several changes to it. The two most notable ones is in Asteroids, your ship is the shape of a triangle. And one of the moves to avoid getting hit is to actually face one of the asteroids. 
And you'll find more often than not that an asteroid would glide right by you just because of the geometry. Yes, you could still get hit, but if you face it, you have a shot at it going by you. In Asteroids Deluxe, they actually made the ship a little wider at the bottom and made it the ship a little bit of a more irregular shape where that you could not use that strategy anymore. And then for some reason, at the end of each round, there was a, a thing called a hexagon come out. And if you shot the hexagon, it divided into three, let's just say parallelograms. I guess you could say parallelograms. Parallel, I can't, I can't say parallelograms, no. Well, they're not parallelograms. I can't describe the shape. They're polygons into um, three smaller four-sided polygons. They're quadrilaterals, okay? Oh, well, there you go. And then you shoot those again, and they, they split into triangles that look not unlike your ship in the original asteroids. Oh, yeah, and they come right for your ship. They home in on you, so you have to, in Asteroids Deluxe, you have to make use of the thrust button. You can't stay in the middle and just rotate. These things chase you down and hunt you. And quite frankly, I think that's what makes Asteroids Deluxe a more fun game. Uh, I'm not saying Asteroids isn't fun. I love Asteroids. But Asteroids Deluxe was always my more favorite. But we're talking about Asteroids here. What about Space Duel? Oh, I loved Space Duel even more. Oh, that that game took everything with Asteroids and Asteroids Deluxe and ramped it up to 11. Cooperative play of two ships at the same time, either on separate sides of the screen, or you have your two ships tethered together, which was an interesting play mechanic. You could play as one player with your ships tethered together. And instead of Asteroids, you were shooting all sorts of different geometrical shapes from, from uh, like, pinwheels to actual rotating cubes. And the rotating animation was just so awesome. And... Uh, Unlike it's probably very Ast- easy to do with vector graphics. Indeed it is. Um, uh, Space Duel is extremely colorful. We're going to have to do a separate episode somewhere down the line about Space Duel, because I'm just gushing over it. I could probably talk forever about Space Duel. How about Blasteroids? Blasteroids is a later sequel. It's uh, It did for Asteroids what Smash TV did for Robotron, which was basically amped up everything. The Asteroids actually look like full-color asteroids with craters and everything on them, but it doesn't use vector graphics. And there are also boss characters in Blasteroids. And I think the biggest innovation, which is actually something I really wish they would have done with the original Asteroids, had they thought of it, is instead of a rotate left and right button, you actually had a dial that you spun around to rotate your ship, which I think is is, uh, is an excellent idea, which I would love to see a retrofitted Asteroids machine with that, but I don't know if, how easy that would be to do, and I'm not a technician. How about Oh, wait, I'm out of Asteroid sequels and pseudo-sequels, so yes. never mind. What say ye? What have you to say about Asteroids? What's there to say? I mean, it's a classic. I love it. You know, I, I tend not to be a huge fan of vector graphics games, but Atari did something right with Asteroids and Asteroids Deluxe and Space Duel. It just seems, to, and Tempest, of course, too. It just seems to work in those situations. It's really, really awesome. And one thing that I have to say, though, if you cannot find some kind of version of Asteroids, be it authorized or unauthorized or real or public domain or whatever, for whatever machine you have, including a calculator probably, you're not looking hard enough. Yeah, there's a public domain version of it for everything somewhere. And even if not, you could you could probably find versions of it online to play on your PC. Uh, the only version I know of that wasn't released, there was a prototype floating around for the Atari 5200, which is basically just a port from the Atari 8-bit computer with the, the wonky 5200 controllers, you know, wired in to control it. 
And the reason that wasn't released is because the 5200 controller didn't work well with the game. One of my personal favorite home versions was Amigoids on the Amiga. Because what it was, you had different, uh, you had different, uh, graphics to choose from, including the Atari 2600 graphics. Oh, cool. So I thought that was cool. I don't think it could, I don't think it had the sound though. It had its own sounds. And you there know, was also it, another one called Lemmingoids, in which oh, instead no. of asteroids, you shot at lemmings. From the lemmings, uh, computer game? From the lemmings computer game, except oh, sweet. I, I don't think it actually used lemmings sound effects, cause that would have been so awesome <laughs> to like shoot at something in here and say, oh no. And my personal favorite version of Asteroids has got to be the Atari 7800 version. I love that game so much. Without a doubt. Now, I recall on the original Atari 7800 boxes, they referred to it as Asteroids 3D. The game isn't in 3D, but it looks like the Asteroids have craters on them. And they rotate. And they rotate. That is awesome. And it's really well done. It was one of the early titles, along with Centipede, that you could play two players at the same time, either... I think you could do it one at a time. Then you had the cooperative mode, which both are on the same time and you just work together. Or you had the competitive mode. Uh, the cooperative mode, there's only one screen... or I'm sorry, one score on the screen. And you both worked to uh, get that score up. And I, I just loved... It's just the little touches... Um, the uh, the UFOs instead of being a solid color, if you look closely, they got little windows and these. It looks like they kind of move. There are like little tiny different colored stars in the background that glow and glitter. And then every now and then you'll get these weird outer space digital sound effects, like uh, like you're hearing from like satellites and stuff. And it's really a really awesome experience. And the thing that I think is sad is people discounted asteroids on the Atari seventy eight hundred. Because it was Asteroids. By the time it came out, Asteroids was uh, was uh, like seven, eight years old by then. And everybody's played it in one form or another, which is really a shame, because this was an awesome version. The one thing I always hated uh, was the 2600 version, because while it was fun, it just seemed like it was really easy to score, because in the arcade version, if you hit an asteroid, not only does it break up into smaller asteroids, but due to the way physics works... The asteroids would not come straight towards you, keep going in the same direction in which they were going. They would split off in this direction or this direction, always maintaining forward momentum, but, you know, often different angles. In the 2600 version, the asteroids would always go in the same way they always went down. And I always thought that that was a ripoff. And it's just kind of, it was a fun game, but it made the game a hell of a lot easier. But then I realized just in the recent years that if you flip the difficulty switch to A, that they behave like the asteroids in the arcade. Really? I believe I'll have to double check it, but I'm pretty sure that's the way it works. I thought the reason that it did that was simply because of limitations and deadlines and things. They didn't have enough time to make it go. I'll have to look into that, but I'm pretty sure I saw that somewhere. I could be wrong. And the first the, the first version I ever played was the 2600 version, so that's that was my standard, and that's why I suck at the arcade version. You know, the 2600 version of Asteroids actually won an award. Yeah? Uh, I can't remember. It was one of those magazine awards. It won, it won for Best Color. Huh. And it's not a bad version. It's not a bad version. It's got a lot of flicker, understandably. But it is a good... I, I like it. I like the 2600 version, but not nearly as much as the 7800 version, of course. I never really did explain much about the hyperspace button. Don't use it. There you go. There's your explanation. Basically, don't use it, because it just puts you in a totally random spot of the screen. If you have no other choice, if you're going to die anyway, you don't have anything to anything to lose by hitting it. But it's not a good escape mechanism. But the 2600 version, and the reason I bring it up, is because they did a few other interesting things with that. Now, 
Because of the, con- the way the controls are laid out on the joystick, left moves, rotate your left, right rotates your right, up is thrust, button is fire, and pushing down would activate hyperspace. But they also added a, cu- a couple of other different interesting variations. Yep. Instead of hyperspace, sometimes it would create a shield, like in Asteroids Deluxe. Asteroids Deluxe does not have a hyperspace button, rather it has a shield button. Now, it makes you bounce around the screen, it makes you bounce off the asteroid, but it's still a shield. On the 2600 version, it basically just lets you float through the asteroid or whatever it is. And how else is it different from uh, the Asteroids Deluxe shield? I don't know. On the 2600 asteroids, if you hold your, if you have your shield activated for too long, you lose a life. Oh, yeah, that's right. It'll blow you up. On Asteroids Deluxe, having your shield up for too long, you simply wear out your shield. Another different thing that the Atari 2600 version had, which actually is really quite helpful in many cases, if you hit down, instead of hyperspacing or putting a shield up, it would make your spaceship flip the opposite direction of which it was facing. That's pretty cool. So if you had two asteroids coming at you from exactly opposite directions, you could shoot one, push down, flip to immediately get over, or, you know, flip over and shoot the other one. That was actually very, very handy. That was, that was, a, that was actually a nice feature. It was, as you were saying, you, you could find a version of asteroids with just about anything, whether it's official or not. Most likely not official, but uh, it's worth a shot. I have, do have to say the Atari 8-bit computer version is pretty disappointing. It's basically the Atari 2600 version. Uh, there's a little more detail in the graphics. Things aren't as blocky, but there's no color. It's a real letdown. Uh, it's not not recommended. There is a variation I have to talk about. This was on the Texas Instruments 99-4A and uh-huh. I believe the Apple II line of computers. There was a whole series of like educational games. And there was, uh, for math, they had one for all the four basic operations. Addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. Huh? The multiplication game was called Meteor Multiplication. And it was basically an asteroids game. Your ship was in the middle of the screen. And the asteroids around the screen all had multiplication problems in them. Mm-hmm. Your job was to type in a number and then shoot the asteroid whose product was that number. So if oh, you nice. see a 5 times 7 asteroid, you had to type 35 and then shoot at that asteroid. And if you shot the wrong number at the asteroid, it would move closer to you. Oh, that's neat. There's a similar version of Missile Command on uh, Linux, which uh, you have to shoot down missiles that have the uh, the number that is uh, over your missile base. So what sayest thou? I sayest thou 5 continues. Um, I do like Asteroids Deluxe better, but Asteroids is a classic, and it's a it's pretty much easy. It's one. Of, it's a get up and play game. Not much to know about it other than you shoot everything. I give it a four out of five. Continues because there's something I found in common with all three of the major asteroids games. That is asteroids deluxe, asteroids, and space duel, and that is that the outcome can be so random. One minute you can have a really good game, another minute you have a crappy game, which you lose all your lives before you even get clear of the the whole asteroid field. Mm-hmm. At least if I go to a game like, say, Burger Time or or one of the Pac-Man games, I have an idea of where my score is probably going to fall, given my ability. Asteroids, you never know. So that's why I have to say about that. And, of course, I probably should shut up because as I look at my scores that I have on Arcade.com, what I have for Asteroids is 8,290, which ain't all that good. 
especially when you compare to John McAllister, who at the Kencade on April 6th, 2010, scored 41,838,740. Well, I was playing it earlier today, and I think I got 12,000 points thereabouts. Yeah, and look at that. See, I mean, I know I'm going to make a lot of people mad by saying this, but seriously, these freaking record holders have got to be freaks of nature. Mm-hmm. I don't, maybe I'm just looking too much at my life, you know, because I have two jobs. I take classes at the Old Town School of Folk Music, so that takes up some of my time. I have a wife. I have a dog. I have my own hobbies. Where are people getting the time to do this? And do they actually have bladders that fill up and need to be emptied? There's no way that 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 40-some million could have been scored in a reasonable amount of time. Somebody, he either must have had a colostomy bag or he had a very, very large two-liter bottle of Pepsi, which... No longer had Pepsi in it, if you know what I mean. As opposed to a small two-liter bottle of Pepsi. Well, you never know. All right, so if we flip over to Twin Galaxy, the tournament setting seems a little bit more reasonable. Uh, John McAllister only comes in third in this. Ha, ha, ha. But on June 30th of this year, just a couple of weeks ago, in fact, two weeks, well, two a fortnight ago, I should say, not exactly two weeks ago from today, because that'll make it July 1st, but 218,030 by Brian Nelson, it says verification method TGSAP, which I guess TG means Twin Galaxies, and I don't know what the SAP means. And um, let's see, for the plain old points file verified by multimedia file, April 22nd, 2010, hey, John P. McAllister again, 41,838,740. So, yeah, Twin Galaxies and Orcade both uh, agree on that score. So, there we have it. I think we should probably get to announcing the uh, the theme. What's, what say ye? So before we get to the theme, I have yet to mention when I first played this game. Now, I mentioned that I played the Atari 2600 first, mm-hmm. but when I played the arcade version, it was when um, my family and I, when I was a little kid, probably around 1981, we were spending Lincoln's birthday weekend at the Holiday Inn in Bradley, Illinois. And we went out to dinner one night, and the restaurant had an Asteroids machine in it. My brother and I played that for a little bit. Ah, fascinating. The name of the restaurant was Hunk's Pancake House. They made they made some interesting cheeseburgers. They had crunchy really? buns and everything. It was really yummy. Well, they're no, they're obviously long gone because they're I, long gone. There yeah. was also another Hunk's downtown Kankakee, but I never was there. So I guess that we need to announce the theme of this, and I think it's kind of well. I don't know if it's obvious, but uh, why don't you announce it? Okay, sure. Announcing the theme of Pie Factory Podcast episode number ten. Featuring Frogger and Asteroids. The theme was games that Sean first played at Hunk's Pancake House in Bradley, Illinois. Little fanfare coming out of that. Uh, It's fascinating because last week's episode were games that I first played in Las Vegas, and these are ones that you first played in Bradley, Illinois. Which is very much like Las Vegas, by the way. Yeah, it is. Although... I like kind of did like Fremont Street because it had the old Vegas feel. Oh sure, sure. And I'm sure Hunk's Pancake House really had the old Bradley feel. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When the uh, wow, what would the Bradley Illinois equivalent of the Rat Pack be? I can't even think of anyone famous from Bradley other than one of our governors that's in jail. Yeah, that's right. He said one of our governors that's in jail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, New Jersey would have Illinois beat if they didn't have all the the under-the-table stuff going on. Yeah, I guess we just get... We get caught. Caught, yes. Yeah. We're not careful. That's bleeping golden. 
So there we are. So another fine, fine episode. And I'm sure Hyde will do his best in post-production because I slipped him an extra 20 this week. Granted, it was a $20 McDonald's arch card, but still, it's 20 bucks. One more thing I just want to say about Pie Factory Podcast. Uh, I know I'm stepping on Jim's toes here because he's technically hosting tonight, but you heard me mention before that we got to get more listeners than the podcast called Serial. And they have, what, 692,724,000,000,000 listeners or something. And people are asking, well, okay, that sounds good, but how can we spread the word about Pie Factory? And I think I came up with a very simple way to do it. Slap people in the back of the head and say, what are you, stupid? Exactly. And they're going to say, well, of course I'm not stupid. I listen to Pie Factory, in which case you just wasted your time. Another way, if you don't want to use corporal punishment, here's what I thought of. Pie Factory. Pi is a Greek letter, kind of. You know, 3.14159, blah, 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 uh, Unless you believe that rumor about the South, in which case pi is three, but no. Or 3.2 or something. Pi is exactly three! <laughs> so having said that, here's what I recommend you do. Just write down, like whether it's bathroom graffiti, or if you're spray painting something on a water tower, or if you just want to type something in your email signature, type the Greek letter pi, followed by an exclamation point. In mathematics, the exclamation point means factorial. So, hey, it's kind of like pi factorial. In fact, what I might do is I might post a picture of what I, what I mean in our, as our Facebook profile picture so that everybody who follows us on Facebook will see exactly what I mean. Next time you go to the tattoo parlor, don't get a Chinese character tattooed on your arm. Nothing wrong with that, but what you might want to do instead is get the Greek letter pi and an exclamation point tattooed on your arm. And there you go. And then when you're 75 and you still have the tattoo and the podcast is long gone, you can literally tell all of your grandchildren, I don't remember what that's about. Did we announce the games for the next episode? Um, We did not announce the games for the next episode, no. The games are going to be Phoenix and Star Wars. We're not talking the Star Wars pods or no. Star Wars. We're talking the original, very first Star Wars arcade game by Atari. Another vector game. Another vector game. So we will talk to you in a week or so about these particular games. Yes, we will. Thank you for all. Thank you for listening. This is uh, Janitor Sean and Jimmy G. Hey there, it's Sean. Sorry about the uh, interruption, and I also apologize for the show being late this week. Well, one of the reasons is because we just got some exciting news. You may remember from episode 9 that Jim was agog that there was a prototype found for the Atari 2600 Xevious, and he wished aloud that that prototype would be released so people could play it on an emulator or a Harmony cartridge or whatever. Well, Jim got his wish. We had to hurry up and mention this as soon as we could, and we are pretty darn excited about it. Jim says that so far it is looking amazing. We will put a link to that in the show notes for episode 10. And thank you all for listening. You will hear from us for, I guess, episode 11. Ta! This episode of the Pie Factory podcast was edited and produced by Hyde St. Pierre. Opening and closing theme is The Happy L, composed by Sean Courtney. Jim and Sean can be contacted on Facebook via the Pie Factory podcast page, over email at piefactory at fab4it.com, or over Twitter at piefactorypfp. Visit the Pie Factory podcast on the web via Flark at flark.it slash piefactory. I, I actually never seen The Godfather.
I watched it up to it's. It, I watched it up to there, and it took like six hours for me to get there because nothing happens in that movie ever. Uh, you know what? On my last podcast, I had Trace Bilyeu from Mystery Science Theater three thousand as a guest, and I mentioned that I've seen all of these bad movies that they did on the show, but I've never seen The Godfather. He was shocked. Well, because you're like, busy watching the bad movies. As soon as we are movies. done here, you need to go out and buy the Godfather DVD three pack. And I still haven't. It is boring as sin. I mean, it's like, oh my, nothing happens. You want a gangster movie? It insists upon itself. Uh, Exactly. And I totally know what he means. I have no idea what that means, but, but we're talking about Frogger here. So we learned that having the same gender of frog contact another will result in death. I guess that's why you never see two, like two frog, two male frogs together at the same time. Ever notice that? You never see a frog gay bar. I know. I know. And there's a good reason for that. <laughs> talk about putting a cartridge in the slot. <laughs> no, let's not talk about putting a cartridge in the slot. Okay. I, I think I think I'm going to have to edit that out. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, we'll have to put that in. Uh, <laughs> that'll, that'll be in post-show. <laughs> I'm giggling like a little schoolboy. You got asteroids? No, but my dad does. Can't even sit on the toilet some days. 